Well, I never really thought that I would see a time when a show about genealogies became popular on TV. Uh, but the show, Who Do You Think You Are, is, is now up to its 12th series in Australia, and people keep watching it. And what makes it so captivating is that celebrities dig deep into their past, and as they do so, they uncover all sorts of things that change the way that they think about themselves. They find out that they're descended from royalty, or maybe that they are criminals, or at least that were descended from criminals, or maybe from both. Uh, they find out that their surname was changed to disguise their original nationality, or, or maybe it's changed to run away from the law. Or they learn about the foreign culture that has influenced them in ways that they never realised. Now, see, genealogies were once considered boring, but now they make TV shows about them. When we read through the Bible, we often encounter long lists of names, uh, the names of who was the father of who was the father of who was the father and so on. Uh, if we ever get to the book of 1 Chronicles in church, it'll be a significant challenge for me to think about how to preach on the first nine chapters. I suspect we might just preach one chapter a week for nine weeks because the first nine chapters are just one big, long genealogy. Uh, some of the New Testament genealogies are a little bit more manageable, like the very first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. For as we read here, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David, and of Abraham. And then we get 16 verses of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so and so forth. Why would Matthew begin his 28-chapter gospel with a long list of names? Surely he could ease us in by talking about the desperate need for a king to rule God's people. Or maybe he could start with some sort of action that you'd, you'd expect from the opening chapters of a crime novel. Or maybe it could even begin with a heartbreaking romantic tragedy that makes us want to turn the next page and the next page and the next page. But you know what? Matthew actually has. He started with all those things and he started with more. And that is because the list of names that he presents to us they give us a dramatic backdrop to the most dramatic birth in history. It's a dramatic backdrop to a dramatic birth. And what's more, it gives us a backdrop to the entire Gospel of Matthew. Today we are beginning a 28-week journey through the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is the first of four accounts of the history of Jesus of Nazareth in the New Testament. And over the next three terms, we're planning to devote ourselves to studying one chapter a week, taking breaks over the school holidays. So that should mean that we'll finish around about Easter next year, unless Jesus returns before then, which would be awesome. It might seem like a, a long journey to commit to, but it's still a lot faster than most people study Matthew's Gospel. Some people will devote an entire term to just looking at the so-called Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6 and 7. And others might just preach one sermon on one parable or another bit. We're going to take much bigger chunks, but still it's going to take us 28 big sermons to get through it all. I've called this series Messiah Masterclass. And the reason is, 
that this gospel has many times where Jesus, who is the Messiah, engages in extended times of teaching. Uh, The first and most famous is, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. But there are four others. We see that Matthew contains five extended teaching events, possibly six. And in these five extended teaching times, we, we see Jesus do a master class, a class with the master. Uh, some people, as a bit of an aside, parallel these five teaching times with the five books of Moses, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, or, which are often known as the law. Uh, that would sort of fit in kind of nicely with the idea that this gospel has a strong focus on the mission of Jesus to Israel, to God's people of the Old Testament. See, to them, Jesus was the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of David. And that's exactly why Matthew decided to start his gospel in the most compelling and captivating way possible, with a list of names. Let's look again at the very first sentence. It says, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Right off the bat, we see that Jesus is the Messiah. He's not just a Messiah, not just another anointed one, another king in the long line of kings of Israel. No, he is the Messiah. And to prove his credibility, we're told that he's a descendant of David, David, who was the greatest king of God's people. He is the one to whom God made a very special promise in 2 Samuel 7. God said to him that when you die and are buried with your ancestors... I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. See, Jesus is the Messiah because he's a descendant of David. But he's not just a descendant of David. He's also, he's a descendant of Abraham. He, Abraham, is the one to whom God made this very special promise even earlier on in the Bible in Genesis chapter 12. God said to Abraham, Leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I'll show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Jesus is the Messiah because he's a descendant of Abraham. This gives Jesus of Nazareth rock-solid credibility. He's the Messiah that they've been waiting for. He is legit. He's the real deal. He's got the bloodlines to be the saviour of the world. But Matthew's not content just to mention David and Abraham. He wants to give us a list of of key people through whom we can trace the line of Jesus right back through history. And here it is, verses 2 to 17. Let's go. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, 
whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiachin and his brothers born at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the Babylonian exile... Jehoiachin was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Achim. Achim was the father of Elihud. Elihud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathen. Mathen was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. There you go. I wonder if you noticed any structure to all of that. I deliberately tried to slow down and speed up and take some breaths here and there to show you. But if you have a look there, you can see that Matthew has carefully arranged all of those names in, in a beautifully crafted list of three smaller lists. There were 14 names from Abraham to David, 14 to the exile, which is when the kingdom is all smashed up, and then 14 to Jesus. There were three lists of 14 names. Now, it's worth noting that some names are missed in that list because whilst father means father, it can also mean ancestor. So it's not a big deal if a few of the actual children are skipped, just to let you know. There are lots of theories about why some are skipped and some are in, but the theory I like most is that Matthew wanted three lots of 14 because the letters to the word David in Hebrew add up to 14. Fun fact. So the letter D, it's Dalit. It's got the number four that it's equivalent to, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit. And then the number six is assigned to Vav, which is the sixth letter of the alphabet. And then you get the letter D again. So four plus six plus four equals 14. There you go. I think it tells you a bit about Matthew as well, probably. He's a bit of a numbers man, a bit of a nerd, perhaps. But what he's done is he's broken it up into three lots of 14. And those 14 breaks coincide with very important moments in history. It starts with Abraham as the Lord calls him to establish a new nation in a new land. And then it goes from Abraham across to David. David is the king who received the great promise from the Lord to have a dynasty, a house that would endure forever. Abraham, David, David. David through to the exile. 
The exile is the catastrophic destruction of God's kingdom, the catastrophic destruction that placed them into a state of oppression and despair. And that's where they were at, waiting, 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 waiting through despair until Jesus comes along. He is the one who brings hope for God's troubled people. He is the long-awaited Messiah. As I think I may have sung some of these lyrics properly before, Charles Wesley wrote, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation Hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. It's a beautiful way of capturing, isn't it? There's a little bit of a problem, and that is the numbers don't quite add up. Sort of. You see, Abraham's number one, and then you count to David and you get 14, and then you count to Jehoiakim and you get 28, and you get to Jesus and that's 40. But three times 14 is 42, so... Something's missing. Now, I didn't notice this. You, you credit me for, Mum, watch it if you think I did. I, I read, read a nerdy book, and there's a whole page about the theories about all of this. But three times 14 is 42, so what's missing? Well, the second set of 14, well, the first set ends with David, and the second set starts with David. That's fair enough. It's all about David, isn't it? You know, DVD. And the third set of 14, well, there's lots of theories about that, but it may well be, and the one I like the best, is that Mary is counted along with Joseph. We've got there the, the legal father and also the physical father of Jesus. So the legal parent and the physical parent of Jesus. We'll find out more about the miraculous birth of the Messiah in a moment. But this genealogy gives us a taste for the amazing event that is about to happen. But Mary's not the only person who appears in this list of fathers, or this list of ancestors. Did you notice that as I was reading it out? There are four others. I wonder if you saw them. In verse 3 we read, whose mother was Tamar. Then verse 5, whose mother was Rahab. And then, verse, and then another verse, it said, whose mother was Ruth. And then verse 6, whose mother was Bathsheba. Why do we have those four women there? Well, those four women point to high drama in biblical history. These four women are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah and all four names are extraordinary moments in the history of God's people. If you thought that Jesus had a boring family history, then think again. Let's start with Tamar. In Genesis 38, we see that she deceived her father-in-law so that he would commit incest with her. Hmm. Rahab. What was Rahab's day job? She was a prostitute. Hmm. Then we get Ruth, who was a Moabitess, somebody who was outside of God's kingdom. And then we get Bathsheba. Bathsheba's the one with whom King David committed adultery. Three out of those four were involved in serious sexual sin. And at least three, maybe four of them, were Gentiles from outside God's kingdom. Now, let's face it, David didn't need to include those women. I mean, he had a good little rhythm going, father of father of father of father of father of father of father, and then it's kind of like a little bit like a, a needle across the vinyl. So-and-so was the mother of... And then 
the person gets listed. Why would he do that? Why would he put all of these controversial women in the history of Jesus? Well, we don't know for sure. There's a couple of theories. One is that it shows that the thoroughly Jewish Messiah also had Gentile blood. Jesus' origins included women from the nations, not just from Israel. And that's important because it prepares us for the earth-shattering message that Jesus wasn't just the Messiah of Israel. He was also God's king of the nations as well. Jesus was God's king for more than just Israel. So that when he says his final words in the final chapter of Matthew, it shouldn't be a surprise to hear him say, go and make disciples of all the nations. That's in the very last chapter. But right at the very first chapter, we've seen all these women from these nations. He had a Gentile past, Jesus did. And so his Gentile future would be there for us to see as well. And isn't that good news? I think it's great. I don't have a Jewish background. I'm a Gentile. And I'm eternally thankful to God that he is so inclusive. He included all the nations, including people like me who came from somewhere in Scotland and now living in Jamboree. But there's a second theory about these four women. And that is that it's a fresh reminder that even the ancestry of the Messiah included shocking sin. Jesus' family tree included incest, prostitution and adultery. And that's just from a few women on the list. Jesus' ancestry was well acquainted with sin. And this is a powerful reminder of why we needed Jesus. And we'll come back to that in a moment when we find out what Jesus' name means, because there is a clue. But there's a third theory about why Matthew might have included those women in the list. And the theory goes that what he was doing was preparing the readers for a shock that they would feel about another woman, another woman on that list. He's getting them ready for a shock about Mary. There are 40 or 41 men in the list, and then we get a woman, Mary. Something's happened to break the pattern, to wreck the rhythm. Father of, father of, father of, father of, father of. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. The pattern breaks, and it breaks because something very special happened in that family tree. You don't need to go back to his grandparents, great-grandparents, or much earlier to see it. The miracle happened with Jesus' mother. And we know the story, don't we? Most of us have been through a few Christmases in our time. There's a virgin birth, immaculate conception. It's old news. But if you'd never heard that before, you'd never encountered it before, and you're reading through this, you will get shocked when you see what's about to come. And Matthew leaves us in suspense for no longer as he takes us straight to the action. Because he says right next in verse 18, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. Oh, well, that's not shocking. There's nothing controversial there. A young couple, Mary and Joseph, are engaged to be married. You need to know that engagement back then was different to our engagement. When you got engaged, you basically had got married. You just hadn't left and lived together yet. And, and, um, and so what would happen is it was a legally binding agreement 
And so to break off an engagement back then was a much bigger deal than it was today. And what's more, if either of the couple were involved in any form of unfaithfulness, it was sad, obviously, but it was more than that. It was actually considered to be adultery. So things were a lot bigger and sort of more serious when you were engaged. That's what Mary and Joseph's situation was like. So Mary and Joseph are sort of as good as married, but then this happened, verse 18b. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. As you do, as it does. Really? Mary became pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. It couldn't have been a normal, natural pregnancy because it says she was still a virgin. It's impossible that any man could have been the father because she'd never slept with a man in that way. This is not a fairy tale. This is not an urban myth. It's not an old wives' tale. This is a truly miraculous event that could not be explained by natural causes. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Get your head around that. And Mary became a mother even though she was a virgin. Try and get your head around that. Now in Matthew's Gospel, we don't hear much about Mary's reaction at all. We see in Matthew's Gospel the whole event through Joseph's eyes. You want to see how Mary reacts and everything like that? You've got to flick over to Luke's Gospel. It's kind of cool. You've got the two infancy narratives, one from Joseph's perspective in Matthew and one from Mary's perspective in Luke. Don't know if you've noticed that before. Anyway, when it comes down to Christmas, have a look at the two. But in Matthew's Gospel, we get it in Joseph's perspective, and here's how he reacted to that interesting news. Verse 19, we read that Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man, and he did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. He knew there was a problem, a really big problem, And I've got to say that if my fiancée told me that she was pregnant and I knew it wasn't me, there'd be a problem, a big problem. And so Joseph decided to call it off. Why? Because it says that he was righteous. He was a righteous man. He was a righteous man, so he couldn't marry a woman who committed adultery. He couldn't marry a woman who had conceived a child from another man. He was a righteous man. He couldn't commit sin by marrying an adulterous woman. But because he was a righteous man, he also wanted to show compassion and kindness to the woman who was about to be his former fiancée. And so he decided to quietly break the engagement. He didn't want to make a fuss. He didn't want too many people to know. He didn't want to expose Mary to charges of adultery because if it really, really got bad, well, the religious leaders could step in and we know of times when... Women were stoned to death because they'd committed adultery. And that surely was the very last thing that we know that Joseph would want to do to his former fiancée. And so he had a plan to finish the marriage quietly for his sake and for Mary's. And then this happened, verse 20. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, 
For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. You could imagine him trying to sleep after the news that he received from his fiancée. He's going to be a dad. Well, he's sort of going to be a dad. Well, how, hang on, how does that all work? This is the woman that he loves. And he's received this news that would shock him to his very core. And he's there asleep and he gets woken up in a dream. And how is he addressed? What does, the, what does the angel say to him? The angel says, Joseph, son of David. Thinking, Hang on a second, my dad's not David. What's this talking about? Oh, son of David, son of David, son of... A... Oh, I know what that means. Hang on. This is related to the Messiah. The Messiah we've been waiting for. See, he knew, as it was said to him there, that the birth was related to the coming Messiah. And then the angel says, don't worry. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Why was he not happy to do it in the first place? Was he fearful? Well, the angel thought so. Fearful of God? Fearful of others. Fearful of his reputation. Whatever fears he had, the angel said, do not fear. Which, incidentally, are words that, is, that, the, that Jesus himself would say when he grew up. Do not fear. Relax. And the reason is that things are not as they seem. I mean, sure, every other pregnancy needs two to tango, but not this one. This time, the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. God himself acted to put the child in Mary's womb. It's an extraordinary miracle. You can see why Joseph wouldn't have assumed an immaculate conception. It's not very normal at all. But an angel's told him the truth. And now Joseph must decide if he will believe and whether he will obey the angel. It's not a given. He might say, oh, bad dream, I'll roll over and forget it. He might think, I can't do that, I can't go ahead. I mean, sure, it's hard to break the engagement, but at least I'll be in the right. And I can say, well, it was her problem and her act and it's got nothing to do with me and I'm going to walk away. But the Lord's messenger said, Joseph, son of David, you need to hear this. Do not fear. The, the, your, the, the woman has a conception by the Holy Spirit. Imagine him telling his friends, oh, guess what? Yeah, 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 conceived by the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, sure. Really? He'd, he'd fear their response. Oh, really? Pull the other one, mate. What's he going to do? What would you do? Well, before we consider that, let's hear the second half of the angel's message. Verse 21. The angel said to Joseph, And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angel made one thing really easy for the dad. He picked him out a name. Thank you. That was much easier. And he says he's going to be called Jesus. Why? Well, the name Jesus, or Jesus in the Greek, is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Yeshua, or Joshua. There you go. So the Hebrew is Joshua, and the Greek version is Jesus. Sort of gets you thinking about all the Joshuas and what the Joshuas were like in the Old Testament, because Jesus is a Joshua. And what does the word Joshua mean? It means the Lord 
is salvation. It means the Lord saves. Jesus' name would be his mission. Jesus would save by name and save by nature. That's his one job. Save people. But from what? What will he save his people from? Well, it's going to save them from their sins. From their rebellion against God. From their determination to reject God and to rule themselves. From the the thing that led the great kingdom of David into the, the fatal collapse into exile that we see so clearly in the genealogy. Sin is a radical independence from God. And it rightly demands judgment and justice. And sin is the greatest problem that our world faces. Actually, that's not quite right. It's not sin that's the problem. It's the effects of sin. It's the judgment of sin. That's our problem. And that is why it is so good that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. Saviour by name. Saviour by mission. And it all happened according to plan. For we read in 22 and 23 that all of this occurred to fulfil the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. In the first of many quotes from the Old Testament, Matthew wants us to see that everything about Jesus was part of God's plan. Everything about Jesus was. And the more you look into the Old Testament, the more you see the blueprint of the ministry of Jesus the Messiah. Even the extraordinary situations of his conception were foretold in Isaiah the prophet. But Isaiah didn't just tell us about how he was going to be conceived. He also tells us a bit about what the child's like, about who the child is. He says he is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Jesus is God. He's fully God while he's fully man. Imagine that. The man who created the universe by speaking a word is the same person that Mary gave birth to. Wow. The same child who went through teething. The same child who who fell over when he was trying to walk and get on his own two feet. Uh, The same child whose voice broke. The same child who hit all of those developmental stages. That child was God. Mind-blowing, really. But not just God. He was God with us. God with us, Emmanuel. He's not God out there, but he's God down here. He's not ruling from a distance. He embedded himself amongst his people. God was with us so that God would save us. And that's the extraordinary message from the angel to Joseph. Is that going to change Joseph's mind? Is that going to lead him to say, all right, well, I won't break up with her? Well, verse 24 and 25, the last verses, we read that when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. And he took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born and Joseph named him Jesus. Well, the answer is yes. He did the courageous thing. He knew it was a problem to marry a woman who carried a baby who wasn't his own. But because he was righteous, he listened to the angel and he followed the angel's command to marry Mary 
and to become the legal father of Jesus. Mary was the physical parent and Joseph was the legal parent. And together they parented the God-man who came to save the world from sin. It's an astonishing story. You can't make this stuff up. And nobody did. It's true. What was promised by the angel actually happened. Because as the genealogy concluded, Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. As Charles Wesley wrote in that hymn, Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now your gracious kingdom bring. What the world needed was a Messiah. And what the world received was the Messiah. And as the baby was born, the world changed forever. For in him was the final answer to the greatest problem. For as his name declared, he would save us from our sins. And his genealogy defined him. His genealogy defined him. As he looked back at the promises made by the Lord to his people... His heritage defined his ministry. And because of who Jesus is, that's who we are. Who do you think you are? If you believe in the Lord Jesus and are united with Christ, that's who you are. If you truly believe in Jesus and trust in him as Messiah, he will save you as your sin, from your sins. Who do you think you are? You are saved. Do you believe it?